makes me feel loved when this guy smiles at me, even though it's probably just gas. I like flowers. <laughs> what makes me feel loved is my friends and how supportive they are. When someone makes me feel like they're constantly there for me. Paying attention to, uh, to other people and having people pay attention to me. When somebody shows me mercy, um, when they just offer me mercy even though I don't deserve it. When I feel loved by God, it's when there's sunshine and warmth and then I know everything's okay. Well, I want to say hi to everybody that's right here, everybody at all of our campuses all around the Bay Area, uh, people joining us online. So glad you're here for this message. We're students these days of the greatest words about love ever written, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm reading that passage every day through this series. I hope you are also. We're rescuing this passage from the quagmire of romantic captivity to weddings and flowers and frilly dresses that never get worn again and overly long toasts and garter throwing because love is to be the criteria of everything that we do. Spiritual maturity is to be measured by love, period. Paul does not write this passage as a valentine to Corinth. He writes it actually because they were terrible at love. And we looked at how the basic message that he sends is do the opposite of what you normally do. We have been learning that love requires the acquisition of character. We often think I'd be more loving if God would just give me more lovable people. But Paul does not say go find more lovable people to be around. He says commit to allowing God to grow you into a more loving person. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is beyond envy. To love means to have an inner orientation where through the power of God, I will and work for the good of another person. And here's the text we're going to look at in this message. Love is not irritable. So every campus, let's read this together out loud. Love is not irritable. That's actually the whole message. Sometimes you hear a sermon and somebody asks afterwards, what was it about? And you think, I don't even know. It's really irritating. This is one of those messages where I promise you will know what it is about. Love is not irritable. And that's needed because life is full of irritants. An irritant is anything that causes frustration. A boss's unreasonable request. Poor service at a restaurant. A relative is deliberately rude. A coworker makes you look bad at a meeting. You're running late, traffic is terrible, somebody deliberately, arrogantly cuts in front of you, and you find yourself seized with the desire to gesture at them in a non-faith-based way. That's irritation. The number one irritant in life, of course, is other people. We say at our church, everybody's welcome, and that's true. It's also true everybody's irritating. But Paul says love is not irritable. Now notice he does not say love never gets angry. Anger is the emotion we experience when our will is frustrated. And the purpose of anger is to provide the energy to deal with the frustration. Irritability is a mood. Now, moods are longer lasting than emotions. A mood is a predisposition or a tendency to have a certain kind of emotion. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of moods, good moods and bad moods. And irritability would be one form of a bad mood. Now, moods or moodiness 
is deeply related to our spiritual condition. Uh, when we seek transformation that's beyond just our willpower or trying to manage our sinfulness, we want the transformation of our moods. If I really believe, like the way I believe in gravity, that there is a good God who created everything and that he is working in everything for good and that that God is the person that Jesus described, he is a joyful and generous being and I am his beloved child and all my sins have been forgiven forever on the cross and that nothing can separate me from his love and that his eye is on the sparrow so I know he's watching me and that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and that there is now no condemnation for those like me that are in Christ Jesus, and that because of the empty tomb, death itself has lost its sting, and that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all I can ask or imagine, what kind of mood will I tend to be in? Well, a good mood. Love and joy and peace will be the default mode. So if I'm in mostly an irritable mood, my mind is probably thinking about thoughts other than those thoughts. By the way, by the way, who is in charge of your mind? Who runs the programming department of your thoughts? Who is responsible for deciding how your thinking will be focused all through the day? Well, that would be you. This is very important when we think about love. The greatest and ultimate freedom is the ability to decide what will occupy my mind. The greatest, most important freedom in your life, which nobody can take from you, is the ability to decide what you will focus your thinking on. An irritable person is somebody who is predisposed to become angry. Their body and their mind are poised for it. Their neural circuitry has literally become wired for anger, and this happens. They habitually dwell on irritation-producing thoughts without even noticing it. Where does an irritable person tend to get angry? Anywhere, at work, at home, at school, in the car, watching cable news, on social media. We live in what is sometimes called the age of outrage. In a restaurant, in a bar, at the store, in a parking lot, at the DMV. People even get mad at church. It ticks me off. Events that a joyful person would simply be able to accept with patience or try to help out in or simply not to notice. You're in line at Pete's or Starbucks, and the customer at the counter gets into a conversation with the barista, and they're laughing and teasing and making small talk. Now, if I'm in a hurry, impatient, focused on myself, I'm thinking, what's the matter with that guy? Just get your coffee and get out. They ought to have a shot clock like they do in the NBA, and if you talk too long, you get no coffee all day. Or if I have died to my self-will... If Jesus and I are in line together, I might think, what a good thing that this customer is treating that worker with warmth and dignity, like a human being. That kind of inspires me. I'd like to see if I can make that person smile. See, it's exactly the same set of circumstances, just this difference, just this. Love is not irritable. 
Now again, Paul doesn't write here, you try really, really hard to not be irritable. You don't become not irritable by trying really hard to be irritable. I aim at being pervaded by living in, being immersed through the love of God. Irritability, see, is a gateway drug. It leads to sarcasm and resentment. Over time, it destroys marriages. It can damage children. Eventually, it can lead to hostility and even violence. Not all irritable people are violent, but for sure, all violent people are irritable. They often start with irritability. Love is not that way. Love is not irritable. By the way, what is this message about? Love is not irritable. Now, what is it that produces an irritable character? Well, this is connected to the very next observation that Paul makes about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. What does that mean? No record of wrongs. Well, we're all record keepers. We all have certain memories and certain thoughts that we store up in our minds and bring back to our awareness on a regular basis. Irritable people keep a record of when they have been wronged. They do this in their mind. They do this by recalling and even rehearsing, playing again in my mind like a rerun, the wrong things that have been done to me. I replay those events in my memory and feel again that surge of emotion that I felt when I was unjustly hurt. And I enjoy the sense of moral superiority that that gives me over the person that hurt me. I enjoy indulging in self-pity. I find other people to tell the story to who will reinforce my victimhood and encourage my moral outrage. I think about it at night. I know all about this. My spiritual gift is pouting. The first thing that happened to me when I came into the world is a doctor slapped me for no good reason at all, and I've held it against them ever since. If I could remember Bible verses as well as I can remember times that I have been wronged, I would have the entire Bible memorized by now. And of course, after a while, that playlist goes on autopilot in your mind. It's like Pandora. Your mind knows your greatest hits list and replays it. And after a while, you don't even have to think about it anymore. It's just autopilot. You might wonder, why in the world would anybody do this? Well, a, a wonderful writer, Frederick Buechner, put it like this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And of course, sin is always that way. It is forbidden by God because it destroys human beings that we sin against and it destroys us. Now here's what's critical. Love keeps records. It just doesn't keep records of wrongs. It keeps other records because we're all record keepers. God's given us this amazing gift of memory, record keeping. It's part of what gives us identity. 
Love remembers gifts to be grateful to God for. Qualities in other people that I really admire. Moments of joy that I get to savor. Suffering that I might actually be able to help out and do something with. Injustice that I might actually be able to help relieve. Love remembers reasons for hope. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is a time that we remember and are grateful for noble sacrifices that many, many people have made and are making in this day on our behalf. Love keeps a record of rights. Paul put it like this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Sometimes people kind of think I should always only be thinking about stuff in the Bible. And to have our minds immersed in the Bible is tremendously important. It's fascinating that the Bible itself points us to thinking about things all over the place because whatever is good and right and true and noble and admirable all over the world every day in creation, in other people, in wonderful books and stories, God invites us to have our minds dwell on this. The greatest freedom in your life is the freedom to decide where is your mind going to dwell. And irritable people place their minds in the wrong stuff. Paul actually uses the same exact word in this Philippians passage that he uses in 1 Corinthians 13. We are commanded where we are to focus our mind. Indulging in wrong thinking is a sin. It is. Nobody can see it. We don't get in trouble for it. But it is. And this matters because God has created your mind and your brain to be record keepers. Every time you think a new thought, new synapses get formed, literally with every thought that make it easier for you to think that thought more quickly next time. Love thinks excellent thoughts. See, and that's why loving actions and loving words flow more and more automatically out of a loving person because they reflect the thoughts going on on the inside. Love keeps excellent records. In love, I live in the recurring thought that I am loved and cared for by God. And, and, and then that leads me to look for other people that I might show love to. To whom might I show kindness? It's love's question. I have a real good friend who lives in the South, and years ago when I visited him, we went to the Waffle House. If you've never been to a Waffle House, it's kind of like the French Laundry, except it's not. A lot of the people who work at Waffle House restaurant in the South, kind of a chain, have faced serious challenges in life, and a lot of them are kind of eaten by. Our server, who I will call Evelyn, was one of those people. And she has faced harder challenges and shown more resilience than I have ever known. My life is so easy that it is embarrassing by comparison. And when I think how hard my life is, how embarrassing that is by comparison. Breakfast in the Waffle House costs about 50 cents. And so just on a whim, I left a $20 tip. And you'd have thought I offered to pit one of her kids through school. She was so joyful. I've never seen so much gratitude in my life. 
So the next time I was there, I left an even bigger tip, and she offered to marry me. Now, every time I go back there, my friend and I go to the Waffle House, and we always sit at Evelyn's table, partly because she would shoot anybody else who tried to wait on us, and I keep leaving bigger and bigger tips, and she looks forward to it when I come, but do you know who looks forward to it even more than she does? I do. It is so much fun. I'm saving money for those tips. In fact, if you give me a tip after the sermon, I will save it to give it to Evelyn. Some weekend, I'll take an offering and bring her a tip from our whole church. When I'm at the Waffle House, this is so interesting. When I'm at the Waffle House, if she's busy, if it takes a little while for her to refill my coffee cup, if the hash browns come back chunked instead of covered or capped or smothered or scattered or all the way, all of which, by the way, are ways you can order Waffle House hash browns, none of which are compatible with long-term life expectancy unless God intervenes in a miraculous way. If she's busy doing something else that takes her a little while to get over our table, do you think I get irritated? Not at all. Take your time. Just relax. Love is patient. Love is kind. See, for those few moments, when I'm at the Waffle House, no kidding, I'm a great guy. I'm the man I would like to be with Evelyn at the Waffle House. What if I were like that all the time? What if I had that mind? What if I was in that mood? See, love keeps a record. Gang, you can do this now. You can start doing this now. This is part of the secret of living in love through the power of God. Love keeps a record of rights, not wrongs. Joy, gratitude. Why wouldn't I do that? Admiration, beauty, service, virtue, care of the suffering, courage in the face of injustice, laughing babies, and lingering sunsets, and fine waffles, and the aging faces of uh, saints who have followed God for a long time. Love says, when can I go back to the Waffle House? How can I find another Evelyn? Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Love is not irritable. And it seems like such a trivial little word, irritable. But a soul can live or die. A soul can hang on it. Israel had won a great enemy against their... Uh, uh, Israel had won a great battle against their enemies. And people were celebrating. They were singing songs about how King Saul had slain thousands of the enemy. And David had slain tens of thousands. And we're told in the Bible, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. What kind of mood was Saul in? He was in a bad mood. In particular, he was irritable. You could easily translate this, this refrain irritated him greatly. Now, why was he in a bad mood? Well, certain thoughts had taken root in his mind. Thoughts like, the people like David more than they like me. Nobody wants me for a king. I'll probably never get the credit that I really deserve. David's probably trying to take my crown. It's my crown. I've got to keep my crown at all costs. I can't share it with anybody. And so I'll brooded over envy and resentment and fear and pride. Notice he could have been in a great mood. I mean, Israel had just won and he was the king. And David worked for him. And David was loyal to him. 
So he could have been thinking thoughts of great joy and gratitude, but his habitual thoughts meant that precisely the conditions that would have produced joy and gratitude in another leader produced resentment in him. And that ripened into hate. And if you read his story, you will find he is consistently in a foul mood. And that leads him to hate. He eventually tries to kill David. And his son Jonathan had become David's best friend. When Jonathan found out what his dad was doing, Jonathan confronted his dad, King Saul, because that also is what love does. But his dad then threw a spear at Jonathan to kill his own son. And here's what happened next. The text says, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Now, the Bible, of course, is not a book of moral object lessons, but I think we're to understand in this case, in this case, Jonathan's anger was a good and noble thing. See, Saul was counting on Jonathan to be afraid. Uh, Fear is a high-energy, negative emotion that causes you to flee a problem, run away. Anger is a high-energy, negative emotion that inclines you to approach a problem head-on. And Jonathan does. It's a good thing he gets angry there and not afraid like Saul thought that he would. Jonathan actually saves his friend David. You might be wondering, when am I entitled to fierce anger? Because that sounds like fun. Well, if your father is trying to kill your best friend, and when you talk to him about it, heaves a spear at your head, then I think it's a healthy response. A lack of anger, when anger is called for, can be as serious a problem as the presence of anger when anger is not called for. But always, always managing anger is an enormous challenge. And it's amazing that even though Jonathan was fiercely angry at his father in this moment, he ended his life by fighting loyally at his father's side. It's more amazing that when Saul and Jonathan were dead, David asked if there was anyone left in the house of Saul. And there was. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, young Mephibosheth, that David could show kindness to Now, Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. He should have been David's rival and enemy. And yet four times in this little story, it says, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Now, why would David do this? Well, David told us, see. In his most famous psalm, Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. And then he goes on to say, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David says to himself, I think I'll take Mephibosheth to the Waffle House. I think I'll I'll feed him. Everybody would think he's my enemy. He's the son of the former king, could have been my rival for the throne. I'll take him to Waffle House. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures all things. Love is long-suffering. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not irritable. But it's amazing. It is a lot easier to talk about love than it is to actually love, isn't it? 
And that's because of one other difficult, courageous step that love takes that irritation never will. Love will do something that resentment, bitterness, holding a grudge, refuses to do. And it involves a, a metaphor, kind of a parable that uh, often floats around, particularly uh, recovery circles for folks that are dealing with an addict. And one version of it goes like this. There's a group of addicts, and they're on a boat called Recovery, and they're sailing to sobriety, to freedom, to moral sanity. A woman named Mary gets to the dock and sees that the boat has just left, and she's missed it. And everybody in the boat yells for her to dive in and swim to them. Come on, Mary. And she does. She dives into the water, but she's having trouble swimming, and she starts going down, and it becomes apparent that she's holding on to this rock. And everybody on the boat yells, drop the rock. Mary, drop the rock. And she looks down. And the rock is all of her resentments, all of her bitterness, all of her wounds, all of the wrong, terrible things that people have done or that she imagines people have done to her through all of the years of her life. The rock is her pride. The rock is her stubbornness. And she thinks to herself, if I don't have this rock, who will I be? My rock is what makes me feel superior to the person who wronged me. My rock is my excuse for my miserable life. And then in a moment of moral sanity that is a gift from God, she thinks, why would I cling to what only makes me miserable? Why am I holding onto this stupid rock it has destroyed my joy. It has embittered my spirit. It's poisoned my past. Uh, it ruins my future. It's killing me. And she lets it go. And she is free. And there is a lightness now to her body and her spirit. And she swims to the boat and climbs on board. And everybody cheers. And they see another guy jump off the dock to join them. And he starts going down. And Mary yells, drop the rock. Just drop the rock. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love drops the rock. And the place for all those rocks is the cross. That's the place where sin met love, and love won. That's the place where I receive ultimate forgiveness. And if I'm going to receive ultimate forgiveness from God at infinite cost of the life of Jesus, how could I refuse? How can I refuse to forgive another human being for a real finite debt when I have been forgiven an infinite debt at the cost of the life of Jesus? So, I'm setting my rock down. Now, this is all my resentments, all my bitterness, all my hurts, all my wounds, all my grudges. 
that foster this horrible sense of superiority and self-pity. Drop the rock. Make this the day that you drop the rock. I'm asking everybody in our church. Maybe it's a little irritating rock that's just festering a little bit. Maybe it's a real heavy rock. I understand. Maybe you're not even sure what all it will mean when you set it down. Maybe somebody has abused you or damaged you or betrayed you. And maybe they have not repented. And so you're not even able to enter into a relationship of trust with them. You're not able to reconcile because they're not willing to acknowledge the truth or be contrite or repent. And I know, I don't know what all that means. There's no necessary formula for all of that. But one thing I do know, you got to listen to this. You can still put down the rock. You can do it today. You got to do it today. Just say, God, I'm putting this problem, this person, this burden in your hands. I'm so tired of carrying this weight in my mind and on my soul day after day. I need my hands for other and better things because I will tell you something. It's pretty frustrating to go through a chunk of time when your hands can't do anything else because they just got to hold that stupid rock. And if that's true of your hands and a physical rock, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it is infinitely more true of your soul and that spiritual burden. You can't carry it anymore. You've got to put it down. It'll kill your heart. And I know uh, we're all kind of reluctant to let them go. They make us miserable. They kill us, but we hate to let them go. So I want to tell you why it's so important. Um, the word rock is a real important Bible word. And it's used in the Bible dozens and dozens of times, interestingly enough, to refer to our God. The psalmist says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. The rock in that ancient world was often a picture. You know, they didn't have uh, uh, real hard drills or explosives. It was a picture of strength. And the idea here is now, I don't hold the rock, the rock holds me. God is my rock, my strength, my sure foundation. Jesus says, the wise man builds his house on the rock. The psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So gang, here's the choice. You can cling to the rock of resentment and bitterness and irritation, or you can cling to the rock that is higher than I, but not both. You got to choose. So I'm challenging everybody in our church, starting with me, put it down. That resentment, that grudge, that smoldering irritation, make the day today the day that we drop the rock and cling to God. And He'll bless you as you do.